A reading today comes from Psalm 8. This is for the music leader, according to the gitath, gitith, which is some instrument that we don't have. So that's another cool thing about the Psalms. Um, there are words that we don't know what they mean, like selah, and there are instruments that we don't know what they are or how they sound or how to play them. Um, but I think all that still emphasizes how musical these are. Uh, these are notations. Uh, this is a songbook. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You made your glory higher than heaven. From the mouths of nursing babes, you have laid a strong foundation because of your foes in order to stop vengeful enemies. When I look up at your skies, at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you've set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What is humanity that you pay attention to them? You have made them only slightly less than divine, only a little lower than the angels. Crowning them with glory and grandeur, you've let them rule over your handiwork, putting everything under their feet, all sheep and all cattle, the wild animals too, the birds in the sky, the fish of the ocean, everything that travels the pathways of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word um, cannot be contained in prose, and so it needs poetry and song. Um, uh, Lord, work this word into our bones, into our bodies, into our imaginations as uh, we live to proclaim your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I realized about halfway through reading that I had put a different version up on here, one that you are unlikely to have access to because it is a version of an um, uh, ancient Near Eastern translator uh, named Robert Alter who does an amazing job with the Psalms. So I'll be referencing this version up on the screen and we'll, we'll kind of leave it up so you can have a look at it. But one, one thing uh, that struck me this week as I was doing, actually the last couple weeks as I was doing some work on these psalms, is how bizarre this psalm's picture of humanity is for what I would normally assume you would get when you walk into a church on Sunday. Like, I would, I would picture and I've heard sermons and I'm much more comfortable with like a Psalm 53 style picture of humanity. Something like, fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They're corrupt and do horrible deeds. Not one of them does anything good. God looks down from heaven on humans to see if anyone is wise, to see if anyone seeks God. But all have turned away. Everyone is corrupt. No one does good, not even one person. This is a psalm that Paul quotes in Romans 3. So, how do we have all of these bound in the same book, only a few pages apart from each other? How do we sing these songs together? Do you feel that tension there? What, it, what is humanity 
that you've made them a little lower than the angels, that you've just made them slightly less than divine. And then the other witness of, of God's word says, no one is righteous, not one. Do you feel that tension? How do we, how do we live in that tension? Because I think it's precisely that tension and how we do or don't resolve it that, that matters for our whole view of the world for, for things that we do and things that we think and how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And I want to suggest that, that maybe a helpful way to look at this um, takes its cue from, from a very old kind of uh, parable, fairy tale uh, story that I just read to the kids a couple days ago. And it is the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Let me refresh you on Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Um, there are bears, and there's a little girl hanging out with bears. Uh, as you can see, these stories are not always super realistic, nor should they be, but they are telling. Because this Goldilocks girl goes into these anthropomorphic bears' house while they're gone, maybe grocery shopping or something, the bears are out, and proceeds to test all the things for this mom bear, this dad bear, and this baby bear. She moves from porridge to porridge to porridge, from seat to seat to seat, from bed to bed to bed, until she finally falls asleep in one of the beds saying, this porridge is far too hot for me. This is way too cold. This is just right. This chair is way too high, way too low, just right. This bed is too soft, too hard. Ah, just right. So right that she rest and sinks into sleep and then she's found by bears and that we we won't we won't talk about that part of the story but what i'm curious and as i as i read it to the kids i kind of laugh because how that story would go in our home with or how it is more likely to go on like saturday is like uh the kids as the bears saying who's been eating my oatmeal over and over and over when it's really just 6.30 a.m. and the oatmeal hasn't been made yet. Like, you know, like there's a massive bear-like impatience to kids under five. But l let, me, let me have you consider with me this Goldilocks principle. This, this, not this, not this, but just right. Like this, this, this has actually, actually even been taken up. If you, if you look on Wikipedia for this, like this is a an, this is a thing, right? The Goldilocks principle. This this is used in developmental psychology that kids are able to kind of compute at various stages of their development. Not not this much, not this much, but just right here, this sweet spot. It's used in astrobiology about why the Earth is able to have life because we're just so, or in medicine or economics. There's there's Goldilocks economics. There's even uh, Goldilocks communication, how, how, we, how we communicate just the right amount at optimal. But I think, I think for us, getting our picture of humanity, our picture of ourselves just right is, is vital because it's so specific. I think one of the, the main reasons we mess this up and then it gets us so messed up and, and probably... Um, you guys are at least here today. <laughs> Probably a lot of our friends and our neighbors that aren't here today, somewhere along the lines, they don't have this kind of 
picture of humanity based on a picture of God and, and it's messed up and it's messing them up and they don't want anything to do with God because of it. I hope if we capture this just rightness, it'll kind of help us recapture and grow into who God has made us to be and, and what he's given us to do. So first there's this implicit in the psalm, there's this Goldilocks view of creation. And when I say creation, I mean we're part of creation. We're creatures um, of creation. We're part of an entire community of creation. In one of these pictures, Goldilocks' first stop, and it's an easy thing to do, is to say that creation is far too bad for God to want to have anything to do with it. This is tough because I think few of us will admit that we think this way, but I think it tinges how we feel about ourselves often. We suffer shame. We, we fear death, and, and we ultimately start participating in the very brokenness that we despise. If you look at the world like this, it's, it's a dooming, trapped kind of world. And so it goes without saying, if that's how this world is, if that's how we are, maybe it's better that God just burn it up and start it over. You can like kind of, maybe it's more efficient to crumble the sheet up and start drawing something new. But then maybe you move on and you say, oh, creation is just too good. It's just, it's all good. And, and it's, I think this is a little, ironic because I, I think this can often come from a it's all bad kind of angle. Like we, ironically, some folks that throw in with this view are precisely the ones that know how not good things are. We, we get bothered by injustice. We get bothered by bad things in this world. So we, we devote our whole lives to doing good and to alleviating suffering. We think we can make it better I think we can make ourselves better with this angle, with this way of looking at things. We can recognize dignity in people and, and, and affirm that. But this doesn't really account for the fact that right before the psalm speaks of humanity's elevated status, right, just below the angels, it speaks about the presence of God's very real human enemies. Did you notice that in there? Can you go back to the first part of it? Um, you notice that right there? God whose splendor was told from the mouths of babes, you found it on strength account of your foes <laughs> that are in your midst. Like uh, we often screen out the fact that, that enemies and evil and sin and brokenness is so real um, with this picture of, of, of even babies understanding how good reality is, how good humanity is. I remember sometime in seminary when I was reading through the Psalms, it started to really bother me when I would read the Psalms. And, and the more you read the Psalms, you realize how present enemies are in these Psalms, either the psalmist asking God to, to save him from his enemies. And a lot of this time it's David, who's, if you know the David story, it's on the, he's on the run and he's being attacked and he's asking for God to protect him. Or it's asking uh, for, for vengeance, for justice upon God's enemies, those who don't recognize God, who don't worship God, who don't um, think the world 
works the way a good God would have it work. But what bothered me is, like, I had a hard time figuring out who my enemies were, and it seemed, like, very dishonest to, to, to pray some of these psalms and not know who my enemy was. And then it struck me, if you're in a story and you don't know who the character in the story is, maybe it's you, <laughs> right? Like, and that's the scariest thing to realize, like, maybe someone else somewhere is praying this psalm about me and I'm the enemy in this. And that's why I'm so blinded to this because that's me. Or, or you know, like, what if, what if my imagination needs to be grown to understand what it means to be the kind of enemy that shows up in these psalms? Because if I don't do that, I'm either going to screen them out and not see them and fall into this trap of it's all good, including me being all good, or I'm going to start making enemies of people who aren't really enemies. I think that happens so much. If you don't have an accurate place to stand to look at this, you're just going to start naming people as enemies who think differently than you, and maybe they're the right ones, right? But I think this psalm, this psalm is so massive. This is a 10-verse psalm. It's just, if you look at the form of it, it's got a chorus. It's like one of those like contemporary praise songs that starts with the chorus, and then it's got one verse, and then it comes back to the chorus. There's not even a bridge. It's not even going to work for Christian radio. But in this short little praise song, it's telling the whole story of Genesis 1 through 3, the whole creation of the heavens and the earth and humanity, the God that rest. It's telling that entire story. And it gets us in there with that first verse, and Robert Alter translates it. Lord, our master, how majestic your name in all the earth, whose splendor was told over the heavens. And he does something really cool, because in the Hebrew, there's this like little um, alliteration there. And so he tries to capture that. Uh, and he says, Lord, our master, how majestic. Like that, it, it, it kind of like fills, your, fills and then empties your lungs to even just start praising God this way. This psalm, this creation psalm, then I think gets it just right. Not too good, not too bad, but just right. A recognition of, of who we are and where we are. A recognition of God's enemies in our midst and our, the possibility that we're going to become God's enemies if we're not careful or that we have. I'm reminded of a, a Frederick Beekner quote that, that kind of gets at this sort of way to view the world. He says, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Like the, this realistic, complicated mixture that situates us exactly how God created us to be and then calls us back into that vocation, into that work into that recovery of who we were made to be that we distort. Somewhere between the glory of the moon and the stars and the creator of the moon and the stars is a very good but not God humanity of which we're a part of. Between, between like good and great, we're like there, right? I think this also plays itself out in, in our calling, in our work, in the things that we do. Like that's, 
that's the amazing thing about humanity. If if you if you start to have this picture, if you start to kind of get revved up on on a, a more positive but not ultimately great picture of humanity, it starts to make you look around and just wonderment about how amazing some of the stuff we're capable of is. Uh, uh, two days ago, uh, I didn't tell Gary that I would use use this, but two days ago I brought Gary and Austin just you know were with us to this coffee tasting and Gary doesn't like hot liquids let alone coffee um, but we brought him to counterculture for this tasting and Gar Gary is also the world's worst Goldilocks because we had three amazing Kenyan coffees and he he never got to the just right spot <laughs> he just said ah, I don't like that ah, I don't really like that ah, I don't really like that it's a really boring kid story um, but one of the things that was really cool to see in Gary was this kind of amazement, even though, uh, and you know, it'll take a while. My main mission is to get Gary into coffee, but, and, and that might take a long time. But his main thing is he, he kept looking around and he kept saying, I, first, I can't believe all these people are here to drink coffee on a Friday, right? And then as, as we kept going, we had this, this kind of like coffee famous guy talking to us. He kept saying, I can't believe that they like put that much effort into this. I can't believe that that coffee goes from a plant to a cherry to a bean and it gets roasted and then it gets shipped and then it comes here and you got a whole warehouse of people sitting around with spoons trying to get it perfect. And, and, and this, I'm paraphrasing Gary, Humankind is amazing, even a little lower than the gods, right? <clears throat> but so I, I'm kind of joking with that. But I, I think it does give us a little bit of a picture, um, and not just with coffee or cuisine, even though if you think about it, like every single day, the little kind of cultural acts we do, like making, making eggs in the morning, is just unbelievable. Who thought of that who, who thought of that right um, especially like when you get like in a very like fine niche like who thought that it had to be exactly so and it would make this so perfect and beautiful and tasty like who thought that they could improve upon a beautiful fresh piece of produce you know and and yet they did and they do you know it's amazing uh, I think that can help us. It, it, it can it can throw us into into worship and wonderment um, to to move from kind of this picture of our work as as kind of too creaturely, too low, too um, like unimportant or secular or these these things that we have tapes running through our heads. Like I'm not doing meaningful things, and I think it'll also save us from from some sort of like over overly uh, rosy picture of this kind of work that we're doing because it's very obvious you can look around and you can see all the ways that creation suffers when humanity abuses it. Like we take this mandate to care for creation and we abuse creation. But then we, we find somewhere somewhere in the middle and I'm not asking for moderation, I'm asking for like the right spot, the exact right thing this calling and this, this, this identity that God has given us to reflect him, to, to be uh, scripture throughout the Old and New Testament 
uses this language that we're made in the image of God. Think about that for a second. That God, it would be humble enough to want to make um, creatures that look and act and have, have massive capabilities for these things like him. But also that those human beings could completely abuse this calling and, and, and use it to build their own gods or invert that mirror that should be reflecting God to creation and creation to God and, and put that mirror onto ourselves so that we could just look at ourselves all the time. I, I think just right for this is, is that we would be made in God's image and reclaimed in that image, even though we're so often cracked or, or distorted and that our job would be cultivating, that we would bring about more than that than already is, right? Like I think that's one of the things God does in creation is he takes chaos and makes order. And I think that's one of the things when we say the word grace, grace is one of those words that we think we know what it means and we say it a whole lot. But really one of the main parts of grace is just excess, massive excess, that God would, would always give us more than we can ask and imagine, that God would always make something possible that seems impossible, that one and one could somehow be three. Like that is, that is grace, that God would fill those spaces. So I think when we read these, when we read Psalms like this and we recapture this picture of who we are, I, I, I think it's massive for also who we, who we come to know who God is. Um, and I think this just, this just gives us all sorts of momentum and power to, to do some of the things in our lives that are so hard that we want so bad and, and we wonder why we, we don't do very well. Uh, in fancy terms, like, I think if you, if, you want, if you want good work, if you want good vocation, you need to have a good anthropology because you need to know how human beings work and, and who you are. But if you want a good anthropology, you need a good theology. You need to know who God is and what God does. I think this is true, like on the just basic level, if you wanna go out of these doors today, Sunday afternoon at home or at the grocery store, if you don't want to be a jerk to someone, you need to have a good picture of what human beings are and who God is. Because that'll give you so much patience and so much grace for someone who's not going to fulfill your expectation, good or bad, for what a human being does. If you want to go out of here and not be completely shaken or destroyed when people let you down or when bad things happen, you need to know what human beings are. Pretty high up there, but not God. You need to know that about yourself. If you want to make like cross-cultural friendships, like, and when I say cross-culture, that could be race, or that, that could just be like a friend who is not like you, doesn't like the same things that you like, doesn't think the same way that you think. This is one of the hardest things to do, but you will be more likely to be able to do that if you have an idea of what human beings are and who God is. Especially when you start to follow that rabbit trail down and you see that, that this human being who's not a lot like you is also made in God's image. And you might see God, you might imagine God through this person. If you wanna work for justice without burning out, you need to know how human beings work including yourself and who God is. 
if you want to do meaningful work or if you just want to like get joy in small things like be content not lazy just content you need to know what human beings are and, and who God is I think this is all predicated on a picture of humanity that's not dirt or stardust we're kind of somewhere in the middle but we're made in the image of God a little lower than divine we're certainly not the ones who made the heavens the moon or the stars but we're crowned the glory is at the top of this psalm whose splendor that's a glory word and then we're crowned with that same sort of grandeur and glory like I think of of uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It gathers in greatness. That's the sort of language. Again, we need, we need poems because prose won't do. I also think about C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He, he talks, and this is so challenging and so exciting. He says, you'll never meet an ordinary person. There's no such thing. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Imagine that. That you go to the grocery store and you're surrounded by strangers, but they're not mere mortals. They're not ordinary. He says, it's immortals that we joke with, that we work with, that we marry, that we snub, and that we exploit. <laughs> he says that, and, and his response to this is to be serious, but also he says, we must play. <laughs> we must play. Because in a, in a world that big and that heavy, there's got to be grace to fill all of that. So we must play. But it's a kind of serious play. It's a, serious, it's a play that takes it serious because often I think our problem in our normal weeks of our normal everyday lives, sometimes we think too much of ourselves. And the Bible tells that story a lot, that, we get, that we're proud, that we want to be God. But I think the opposite side of that same coin is a lot of times we just think far too little about ourselves or far too little of ourselves that we we ignore the massive potential that we have as images of god and c.s lewis and he's catholic he says next to the blessed sacrament your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses how about that <laughs> I think what Lewis also gets at is, is one way that you'll, you'll know that you're getting good at this, one way that you'll know that you're entering closer into communion with God and with other people is that your, your pictures of them and your interactions with them will be far less flat. They'll be way more dynamic and textured. Like I've learned this, especially with like, um, on the rare occasion that I've like encountered a celebrity like someone who's like kind of semi-famous um, that I've gotten to know a little more than that. Or this also happens like with, with um, kids or with spouses or with, with like persons with disabilities is like, it's really easy to ha to like consider them really awesome until you get to know them. And then they're just a normal person and they're not that different from you. And you start to realize that kid who is amazing and made in God's image and in some ways showing so much more of God than I, than I am capable of right now is also a sinful little creature too, <laughs> right? Or that celebrity who you had this amazing high picture, and this is especially true with like, quote, Christian celebrities, 
is is also capable of being a real jerk sometimes too because they're a human being not god a little lower than god the same thing and um, we have several people in the congregation that do stuff at reality ministries and that's like the key indicator if if you are really making friends like everything around reality is around the terminology of friendship and i think that's wonderful uh you know uh, participants are called real friends and those are people with or without disabilities um, but the way that you know that you've really made these friends it, is when you get annoyed with them <laughs> because they become a real person made in the image of God, not just some idea that you have for them. And there's, there's this level of familiarity and unfamiliarity. I think especially with marriage, that freaks us out when we have this great picture of a spouse and then in the course of the, the first 18 months to five years, we realize like they can be kind of a jerk and they can be kind of a jerk to me. Like what in the world, you know? Again, you're gonna need this picture of what a human is and who God is. But I think the cool thing is we're not left without kind of we're not left to our own devices. We're not left without instruction on how to do this kind of Goldilocks thing. We don't have to set our own kind of scale for what's too hot and what's too cold and what's just right. The New Testament picks up this psalm right here several times, and every single time it does, every single time it pops up, it points exactly to Jesus. Exactly to Jesus. It, 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 essentially, in this Goldilocks terminology it says Jesus is it Jesus is just right if you want to get this right that's Jesus like Hebrews 1 and 2 directly quotes the psalm and then it says this psalm is about Jesus the son of man like it says um, <laughs> it says however we do see the one who is who was made lower in order that the in order than the angels for a while. It's Jesus. He's the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. And so a, a little backstory there. Psalm 8 is this David psalm. We, we see that in the little subtitle. It says a psalm for David or a David psalm. That might mean that he wrote it, but it also might mean that it is exactly for him. Like it is a, a, a crown, like a coronation uh, commission for David and that it's talking about David. So when it says, what is humanity that you're thinking about them? What that's really saying in, in like the original words is saying, what, are the, what is the son of man that you think of him? And, and in a Hebrew imagination, the son of man is a Messiah, is the one who fulfills everything humanity should be, and that's normally David. <laughs> that's a king, that is an anointed one, that is one who is going to, to gather up God's people and, and establish God's kingdom. This is, uh, it's, it's one who's gonna defeat God's enemies and do something that God's people couldn't do for themselves. But then Hebrews says, that David Psalm, that son of man, we've seen the shadow of that, and now we see the fully developed picture of that in Jesus. It says that Jesus has brought all of God 
down to us before bringing all of us up to God. This is a main theme in Hebrews. I remember from a few weeks ago when we, when we celebrated the ascension that a human being with a body is sitting next to God on the throne at God's right hand. That, that Jesus, the son of man who's gathered all of humanity up, has brought all of God down to us before bringing all of us up to God. And thereby he's remade us. He's put us exactly back in this place. Not too low, not too high. He's put us exactly back in this Goldilocks, just right place with God, with his purposes, doing all those things in the second half of the psalm, like uh, caring for animals and fish and things in the sea. Like, uh, again, this is a creation order, but it's also our creational, our cultural mandate. And then the psalm that hopes that this would be manifest in a king like David says that in Christ, we see everything and everyone that David wanted to be or that people wanted David to be. A king, a messiah, one who would work with God to establish God's victorious kingdom and defeat God's foes. And in this case, God's foes are sin and death primarily. Secondarily, it's sin and death working in other broken humanity, other, other people pushing against the kingdom of God. It says that now humanity is remade into what we always had the potential to be. But then that story takes a surprising twist and turn as Jesus suffers and dies and then is raised by the spirit to new life and we're included in that new life. That's the good news. It says, uh, that Hebrews passage says, Jesus suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. Good news is that Christ tasted death for everyone on our behalf so that we could drink of life. This is, this is also a story that Philippians 2 is telling when it, when it situates Jesus in our spot so that then we can regain our spot. It says that, that Jesus, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Like Jesus, uh, I, I like to picture that Jesus like set a place, set like a placeholder so that then we can jump into that spot this just right place of, of um, being made into the form, into the image of God, but not exploiting it, not ruining it, not doing the sinful things that we're prone to do. 1 Corinthians 15 also picks up this story in this vocabulary, and I think it's up there. It says that Christ has been raised from the dead is the first crop of the harvest for those who have died since death came through a human being. The resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so that everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop of the harvest, then those who belong to Christ that is coming, and then the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end. It is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be brought to an end. Since he brought everything under control under his feet, when he says that everything has been brought under control, this clearly means everything except for the one who placed everything under his control. 
just a little below God. But when all things have been brought under his control, then the Son himself will be under the control of the one who gave him control so that God may be all in all, so that God will fill, will expand, so that grace will permeate all of creation that's been renewed. Ephesians 1 also says, God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. We're invited into communion with this full God. And the church, like an ordinary church, not like, not, not a great church, not, yeah, not, not a church that's too bad or a church that's too good, but a church that's just right, is called the fullness of Jesus, the fullness of Christ who fills all. To close, we've talked about anthropology and we've talked about theology, but I think the main point of this psalm is doxology. And like we sing doxology, but that means praise, that means worship. Because aside from situating us, aside from reorienting us to who we are and, and where we are and showing us that for any of us, uh, any of that work that we need to know who God is and what God has done in Christ to reconcile creation and especially human creatures to himself, it also shows us subtly but powerfully that this all starts and ends by praising God. That even perfect theology like thoughts about God or knowledge about how all this works isn't enough. The proper response is worship. Declaring once again with creation, he kind of, he kind of, the song, the, this little song kind of takes it all apart and then puts it back all together. The chorus is always, Lord, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This puts us back in order. We rejoin creation in glorifying the creator. But we also join the creator. By the spirit, we join the word that became flesh in bringing about liberation and in bringing an end to creation's groaning for renewal. Like creation praises, but creation also suffers and groans for renewal. So that that then the only eternal thing is praise. If you want to think about heaven, if you want to consider what it's going to be like, think about praise. Because the pictures, the little glimpses we get into heaven in the book of Revelation, people are standing around saying, holy, holy, holy. People are falling on their faces. People are praising. Like that's the eternal activity. <clears throat> I think... Uh, I want us to go out of here um, kind of with this, with this sort of wonder, with this sort of kind of, also kind of, um, I think that thinking through and, and, and these sorts of things are like, like eyeglasses. You don't often look at them, you look through them. And so like, uh, I want us to, to go this week and kind of take the glasses off and kind of look at the anthropology and the theology that we're seeing everything through. And, and maybe even when you have those off, just start praising. Do that doxology thing before you put them back on and then keep doing it. And, and so I hope your vision changes over the course of time, even starting this week. Uh, there's this great story of Thomas Merton in Louisville, and he had this sort of 
epiphany, this sort of just right epiphany when he was walking around Louisville. And like Thomas Merton's this brilliant, wise, monastic man. And this major epiphany comes in the middle of downtown Louisville. Um, and he, he, he says, I was struck with such relief and such joy that it made me laugh out loud. He says, I have the immense joy of being man, being a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate. Like, uh, I hope that situatedness, that just rightness, just a little below the gods, but part of this creation teeming with grace and teeming to respond to God will, will just bring you this joy this week that, that might drive you to repentance, but it will mostly drive you to rejoicing. Go this week is nothing other than a little lower than angel human beings crowned with God's grandeur and glory. Because Jesus has redeemed you and shown you the way. He's joined you to God's mission and work to tend to this community of creation, which sings God's praises and groans for God's redemption. So go singing, use these psalms, about the majesty of the master, whose name echoes off massive mountains and ravines of his making, and whom the sun and moon and stars and tides speak of his faithfulness, for whom the trees of the field clap their hands. This is God whose song also seeps into the nooks and the crannies and the infinitesimally small and particular ways that you cultivate and work with God this week with your kids, with your job, with the normal ways that you live and work with people. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this picture. I, I hope, I hope it's, it's refreshing for some folks in this room um, as it has been for me these last couple weeks. Uh, Lord, um, where... Where you need to, Lord, heal some places where we've we've just had distorted, messed up pictures of you, and distorted, messed up pictures of ourselves. Whether whether how we look at ourselves started with a, a bad picture of you, or how we look at you starts with a bad picture of ourselves, Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds, uh, relocate us, put us in that just right space. Um, that's part of, but the pinnacle of creation, uh, right below you, but seated at your right hand in Jesus. Uh, we thank you for, for these cosmic transformative truths that, that make their home in our midst and ultimately by your spirit dwell within us. Energize us for that, Lord. Um, uh, help us go out of here just like Merton, like laughing out loud that we're part of this. Give us imaginations for, for what that's going to mean for us, how we're going to approach the things that we're already doing and how we're going to approach things that, that you're speaking to us and sending us towards. Uh, may, may our neighbors in this neighborhood and in our work and in our homes be blessed by this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.